Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. 41,000 hours of footage. That's what Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, gave to Tucker Carlson of Fox News. 41,000 hours of January 6th coverage. All the surveillance video. All of it. Here you go, Tucker. Oh, I'm very curious to see what's what. Now, I do wish that McCarthy had done this a little more Twitter files style. Let a couple people have it. Share it a little bit. That that would have been solid by me. I'm, I'm not saying I would have gotten any of it. Please don't get me wrong. But man, I want to know. You bet. But every single Tucker intern right now is Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange, just eyes forced open, watching video after video after video. Dear Lord, that's that's got to be a gigantic, gigantic pain. I actually have exclusive audio of what that's like. Inside the Tucker Studios. The Inquisition. Let's begin the Inquisition. Look out, Sam. Yes, very rough. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. My people, my people, what is going on? 833-GOT-TONY. 833-468-8669. I love it. I I love that he did it. I love that Speaker McCarthy did it. Because... What I mean, never mind. I mean, there, there's a lot of people uh, who were part of that January 6th committee that I would like to take a look at some of these videos and be like, wait, why didn't you share that with us? Wait, why didn't you share that with us? But no one more than Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, two so-called Republicans. And there's a really weird conversation going on. I, I didn't think I was going to do this. Do you guys mind? Do you guys mind if I change gears? You guys don't care if I change gears, do you? Um. It's this idea of what makes a conservative these days. What makes conservatism? What makes a Republican? And you're you're hearing from people who are who are trying to somehow claim that, you know, Republicans were people like Larry Hogan and Chris Sununu, you know, back in the old days, BT, before Trump. Ah, hold on a second. We should take a moment to ask ourselves what that actually means before Trump and after Trump. Because one could argue differently, of course, that um, you could argue this before Reagan and after Reagan. What actually is the argument here? I put forth to you, and I am willing to happily, joyfully debate it, that it is not a conversation about policy. It's not a conversation about policy. It's a conversation about style. And I'm not voting for a boyfriend, so therefore, why would I pay attention to the never-Trumpers regarding Trump's style? 
Your argument is, yeah, but Trump has nothing to do with policy. Talk to me about policy, and we could have ourselves a heck of a conversation, like, for example, tariffs. Trump putting tariffs on to be able to try and get China to the negotiating table. As a tactic, I was fine with it, because you have to try something. But what Trump would do was brag that we were bringing in billions of dollars. That is, so we understand each other, that is a tax. Tariffs are taxes. Of course they are taxes. Anybody who questions whether or not they're taxes is out of their skull. It's a tax. And what I said was, well, maybe it'll bring them to the table, force them to the table, let's go. Cheering it on, of course, I thought was bad policy. I said, so then I say it now, I say it without question. That is a policy conversation that you and I could disagree about. Okay, fine. That's not what a real Republican does. Well, you're telling me that a real Republican takes a trade deficit with China or other issues regarding trade with China and just goes, oh, well, what can we do? It's not like we could do tariffs. We don't do that. If that is the argument, better the new style of Republican than the old. Because the new style of Republican must fight. George Walker Bush, not George Herbert Walker Bush, so 43, not 41. Every day got called a warmonger, every day got called names, every day got belittled, every day got attacked by the political left, and you know what he did? Nothing. Nothing. And the Republican Party got punched in the face and punched in the face and punched in the face. And you know what Bill Crystal did, formerly of the Weekly Standard, before it closed up shop? He took everybody on a cruise. Well, everybody who was willing to pay him $5,000. Now, I'm not anti-cruise, don't you know? I am pro-cruise. There are a couple of outfits reaching out to me about, hey, would you like to take a cruise with your listeners? And I'm like... I don't know. Do we want to take a cruise? Can you smoke cigars on the cruise? What are we doing on the cruise? I mean, if I'm going to put together a cruise, I would put together a serious cruise that would have cigars and food, and it would be nutty. It'd be awesome. But I'm not going to sit there while Republicans are getting punched in the face and be like, yes, we have to be more refined. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying the cruise. Next time, you should, you should take the luxury cruise. I make an extra $2,000 when you take the luxury cruise. <laughs> That's Bill Crystal. This guy who complete, has completely broken. Trump broke him in half. Whether it be him, whether it be David French, Goldberg, a host of people who have just been destroyed by Trump's existence without a recognizing of what it is he's doing. And you don't have to like all of it. I can appreciate such a thing. But the old Republican got punched in the face and punched in the face and was told by a certain number of Republicans, here's how you act refined. And oh, by the way, I'm the voice of conservatism. Go on my cruise. And Republicans looked at that and said, that deal sucks. Why don't we fight back? Why don't we push back? Why aren't we engaged? And now I've got people who will tell you that engaging is just, well, that's just a culture war. You mean the left does whatever it wants to do. The right says, wait a second, that's not right. And the left says, how dare you fight us? That's a culture war. Oh, kiss off.
If Trump taught anything, it's how to fight. Fighting's very important. So I'm not about to listen to the Alyssa Farahs of the world or anybody else tell me how Republicans used to be. Republicans sucked. They were weak and they were shallow and they were incapable. They weren't dumb. They had good ideas and good philosophies. They engaged in smart conversation, but they didn't fight. They did not fight. And the question before us is, exactly how long can you go on without fighting? The correct answer is, not very long. That's the only answer. Not very long. What do I think about these 41,000 hours of video? I think this is absolutely positively fantastic. And I love the fact that Adam Kinzinger is out of his mind about it. Putting out a tweet. So Kevin McCarthy shared the surveillance footage, not with the rest of Congress, investigators, or anyone like that. It was Tucker Carlson. The Elise Stefaniking of McCarthy has been breathtaking and not the man I thought I knew before Trump. Lies, lies, lies. Kinzinger was on the committee. The January 6th committee. He could have shared all of this with members of Congress or investigators. Nope. What did he share? What did he do? Adam Kinzinger is only upset that we are now going to see what he did not want us to see. That's the story. Why didn't you share with us this this uh, video, this footage? Not only did you not share it with us, you were so careful on what you shared that you shared things as put forward by the ABC showrunner you hired, which is why I, when I was on Newsmax uh, the other day, I stated very clearly that what they need to do is hire a producer. They need to hire a producer, a showrunner, and put all of this information out there with the showrunner, bit by bit, expose how things went. Now, I said that about COVID, but this also applies. Show the video in a way so we understand exactly how things developed on January 6th. Who was indeed responsible? Who did gin people up? If you want to, if you could show me that it was Trump, show it. If you could show me that it was Ray Epps, show it. 
Who's Ray Epps? Well, Ray Epps was the guy who kept screaming to people that we're going to go down to the Capitol. We have to go down to the Capitol, get down to the Capitol. And then people are like, who was this guy who was screaming for everybody to get to the Capitol and riot? We should really investigate him. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, 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 can't ask him any questions. Well, we asked him questions, but we're not going to let loose what we what we asked him. We're going to keep that under lock and key. Oh, interesting. Weird. Problematic. I believe I believe the word we're looking for is problematic. I love, love that Kinzinger is upset about this. He could have shared this. He didn't. So I think it's good that we're going to see it. And I think that's good that it was delivered to a member of, of the media. Yes, Tucker's a member of the media, just like I guess you could say I am, just a different, you know, different amounts of popularity. I, wouldn't that be the, 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 the correct way to put it? And I'm not saying he should have given it to me, but I think he should give it to some other people. Just the way I started. He should give it to some other people. He should share it with some other people. I think this is that important. I cannot wait to see what it shows us. But never forget that what is important is the fighting back. Now, do you fight to the extent that you give up your morals, your code, your decency? No, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe that in the fight you give up a, a, a rational sense of being. But you'll note how they see your fighting back as you being irrational. They call you involved in the culture wars and everything else. What's important at that moment is to completely ignore them. They can't believe you're fighting back. They are so angry that you are fighting back. They hate you for fighting back. Yes. And if you want the difference between today's Republican versus then Republican, it is that fighting back. Now, some people ain't perfect at it. Some people really screw it up. This much is true. I'll try and get into what Marjorie Taylor Greene said about a national divorce. But what they're most upset about is the the idea that you fight. What they hated most about Trump, as Evan Sayet wrote in the pages of Town Hall many years ago, was that he fights. This is what they hated. This is what most frightens them and bothers them and upsets them, infuriates them. They find intolerable. And that's why you have to keep doing it. Adam Kinzinger wouldn't do it. You'll have to make the choice for yourself. I'm Tony Katz. So tonight, I speak once more to the people of Russia. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, It would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. 
It seems to me that Joe Biden is very, very comfortable in this mode. Because this is very much the mode he was raised upon. The idea of here's the right, here's the wrong, act the tough guy, and all is good. There is a moment where this kind of talk would have easily been applauded. And there is an extent to which it should be. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.locals.com. Um, Biden was not mincing too many words in this speech that he gave in Warsaw just earlier today. The world is also coming together to address the global fallout from President Putin's war. Putin tried to starve the world, blocking the ports in the Black Sea to stop Ukraine from exporting its grain, exacerbating the global food crisis that hit developing nations in Africa especially hard. Instead, the United States and the G7 and partners around the world answered the call with historic commitments to address the crisis and to bolster global food supplies. And this week, my wife, Jill Biden, is traveling to Africa to help bring attention to this critical issue. Okay. Bringing up Jill makes you sound ridiculous. I'm sorry. Dr. Jill Biden. Don't you know how to address her, Joe? My gosh. Um, this, this would have been seen as the strong talk. Putin tried to starve the world. That's, um, that's a take. That's a take. Did Putin invade Ukraine? Did Russia invade Ukraine? The answer is yes. Was there a need to do this? As Vladimir Putin keeps discussing, there was importance, not in my view. Does he lie? Well, of course he lies. All communists lie. Is Ukraine right to fight back? Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Of course they are right to fight back. Do I have an issue providing them weaponry? No, I don't. But I'd like to know what the goal is. Fighting back? Well, fighting back is only part one. Fighting back until when? For forever? Destabilizing Putin? Killing Putin? Getting rid of Putin? Installing somebody else? Leaving Russia a vassal state that is then controlled by China? What's the plan? It's all he's got to deliver. This kind of speech is the actual standard speech. I find it fascinating to see Democrats cheering it on because isn't this kind of talk, isn't this kind of uh, of talk like very neocon? For those of you who, who follow that, that conversation, like isn't that, isn't this that? One year into, one year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition, but he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. If you think I'm wrong, really, tell me. But, like, does that sound like the talk of a Democrat to you? Isn't there a weird, like, role reversal going on with this? 
I think the problem is for the right, there is no answer to, well, how long does this go on? The right, it, it's like the libertarians won that fight about endless wars. Interesting. Meanwhile, there's a war brewing in the Supreme Court about Section 230. That's next. I'm Tony Katz. So the Supreme Court today heard an argument, an argument that quite literally can change how we utilize the Internet, how we share information about how these platforms deal with information. And I got to admit, it's not just one case that they're hearing. It's two, one today, one tomorrow. And it's fascinating stuff. I mean, you want to get into some real nitty-gritty about what the what the Supreme Court has to look at. This is one of those cases. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. This is all about Section 230, guys. This is all about whether or not we can say you are a platform and therefore you are not responsible for what people post on the platform, even if it's hateful, even if it's vile, even if it's dangerous. And then we say yes, but then they utilize that to go about saying, well, we can decide that this is good and this isn't, and therefore they center what? Conservatives. People possibly like you and me, people you might know, and say you can't speak, you can't share, you, the New York Post, can't share a story about Hunter Biden's laptop, even though you've got the story complete. Well, what happens if you take away those protections of Section 230? Does it actually create more opportunities for no one to be heard? And how do these cases that the Supreme Court is about to hear affect all of us? Jake Denton joins us right now, research associate in the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. And of course, you've been uh, following these things. You've been writing uh, over the past few months uh, about uh, how, for example, we need to ban TikTok from operating in the United States. Uh, you, You take a look at some of the censorship conversations that are going on regarding Google and regarding others. This is a whole different ballgame. When you take a look at what this Gonzalez versus Google is, break it down for us, Jake. What is this case and how can it possibly affect all of us? Yeah, so this case really attacks the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Uh, so that's where Section 230 comes from, uh, which kind of gives broad uh, immunity to big tech platforms, uh, shields them as publishers. Um, so anything that is you know, offensive content, things of that nature, they're protected from the liability of that um, due to kind of uh, broad interpretations of the the text of the law. And so um, essentially what this case is arguing is that the algorithm that uh, Google uses on YouTube to deliver uh, kind of content recommendations is not protected under Section 230. And it calls into question kind of the broader Uh, scope of Section 230 in kind of the modern digital age. So I think what the court is beginning to realize is that, you know, Section 230 came about in the days of AOL. You know, Mark Zuckerberg was still around the age of uh, a middle school student. And now we're dealing with a whole new internet. And I think we're calling into question a lot of these protections uh, because they simply uh, weren't thought of back then, these issues that we're dealing with today. So one of the the conversations, Jake, talking to Jake Denton, D-E-N-T-O-N, Research Associate at the Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation, is that here you have the, the, the this family saying that they have a family member, a victim of a terrorist attack in Paris in 2015, 
And what they are actually suing about, what their their lawsuit claims, is that Google violated U.S. anti-terrorism laws because an ISIS video appeared in YouTube's recommendations. And their argument, which admittedly is fascinating on the legal, is that Section 230 protections should not apply because YouTube's algorithms suggested the videos. So as the the quote comes from a Daphne Keller, uh, she directs the program on platform regulation at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. It basically boils down to saying platforms are not liable for content posted by ISIS, but they are liable for recommendation algorithms that promoted that content. In your view, is that a worthy argument that the court might take seriously? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, if we look back to, uh, you know, some of the old statements from Clarence Thomas, um, he kind of signals that the court wouldn't take up a Section 230 case of this nature unless there was a, a worthy challenge to the, the text. And so I think, you know, the court is considering this a legitimate challenge. And I think we should as well. If you really look at the core of this argument, um, the way it attacks the, the algorithms that these platforms use, um, you know, it, it really it does make sense from both a legal perspective and just a common sense perspective when you're a user on these platforms such as YouTube, they're actively recommending you videos. And if you really look at the protections that uh, it supposedly shields against in Section 230, it doesn't really seem as though it applies. I mean, uh, you know, if you're a, an ISIS terrorist and you're scrolling through YouTube and it takes you down this radicalization pathway, um, there should be some liability on Google's end. And uh, frankly, you know, they've spent so much time deplatforming conservative perspectives that they've allowed uh, kind of ISIS content, this extremist content to just go unmoderated. And so they can hide behind the algorithm all they want. But when it comes to the, the courtroom and what they're going to interpret, it seems as though they, they lean on the side of, you know, the protections not applying. So if they go about that and they say and the court says, you know what, uh, th- this is indeed uh, and, and a, let's call it they'll say it's an abuse of Section uh, 230. Right. And that you have to now get rid of this. And these platforms have to be held liable for what it is uh, that is on their platforms. The argument is and this is an argument from Facebook and others that that's the end that's where the real censorship comes into play because these platforms are going to be so absolutely freaked out they're going to be like nope can't have this can't have that can't have the other and what you'll see is more regulation of speech and not less is that a concern so i think what we're seeing here is that you know these tech companies view this as a legitimate possibility to kind of uh take away these protections and so they're playing to our side right they're saying you know we're going to censor you more if you uh, you challenge these things. But the reality is this isn't going to get rid of all of the Section 230 protections. This is going to, uh, in theory, it could strip immunity if they censor, you know, constitutionally protected speech or um, otherwise kind of uh, political uh, speech rather than, you know, every single thing that you post on uh, a social media platform uh, you're liable for. You know, there will still be carve outs for, you know, lewd and otherwise um, kind of uh, offensive content as is already written into the the law, but um, this isn't going to completely uproot Section 230. It's going to uh, take a modern approach to the protections that um, you know it didn't really consider back in the day before you know social media was even invented. So this is really modernizing 230. This isn't going to get rid of all of the protections that they're awarded. 
talking to Jake Denton, Research Associate, Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, your associate over there, uh, Theo Wold, a visiting fellow in tech policy uh, at, there at Heritage, writing in the pages of Newsweek uh, just this uh, past week, uh, that that immunity, meaning Section 230, is expansive on its face, but big social media wants even more. The platforms want Section 230 to immunize their proprietary recommendation algorithms, too. These are the algorithms that sort, rank, and recommend user-generated content and targeted advertisements to social media consumers. You're stating that the tech companies, uh, if, if I were to uh, paraphrase that, me think thou doth protest too much. That if you, if you find them guilty in this regard, uh, you eliminate Section 230, or at least its protections, and it's all just a giant hellscape of censorship from there. That's what they're saying. What you're saying, and what I think what uh, Theo Wold is saying here is that doesn't have to be the case, that you're already having them act in this willy-nilly way of censoring anything they want, anytime they want. Now the onus is to actually, what, do it right or to do it less? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. I think, uh, you know, the way that Theo encapsulates the issue is perfect. Uh, you know, if you look at social media content moderation in its current state, um, they're doing a lot of the things that they're basically telling us they're, uh, they're not capable of doing in these Section 230 objections. You know, they're combing through what they view as hate speech, and they're, you know, successfully able to get rid of all of that. But when it comes to, you know, terrorist content or things of that nature, they act as though it's an impossible task. So it's really just shifting their focus. If we protect political speech, uh, it gives them, you know, maybe some more opportunities to go after more offensive things such as, uh, you know, terrorist uh, content on the platforms. Um, but at the end of the day, they possess all the capabilities necessary to successfully kind of moderate content on the platform without impeding on our constitutional freedoms, without kind of taking away our, our freedom of speech. Uh, but they choose not to. They choose to target conservative speech. They choose to target, you know, things that don't really align with the Silicon Valley worldview. And so, you know, whether it be terrorist content or otherwise offensive things, they run wild on the platform. And so ultimately, this is going to really put them back in line. It's going to make sure that the correct forms of content are moderated on the platform. If you were a betting man, um, taking a, a look at how uh, this case is going to get heard today and has been heard and, and what's coming tomorrow, Knowing this court, knowing this subject matter, what's your take? What's your bet in Vegas? Are we going to see the court state that Section 230 should be obliterated, uh, that uh, Section 230 does not protect on an algorithm, that Section 230 covers all and therefore you cannot find, you cannot hold uh, Google liable? What do you think this court's coming back at, whether it's you're going as an overall or you want to break it down uh, justice by justice? Yeah, well, frankly, it's going to be very tough to say at this point in time, you know, listening to the, the oral arguments today, I think it's very evident that there's kind of a haze of confusion surrounding the case. Um, you know, even some of the brightest lawyers in the country are, you know, struggling to interpret kind of the broad uh, nature of Section 230. And so, you know, I think what it really highlights is regardless of what the court decides, uh, legislators are going to need to step up here in the wake of this case and actually 
propose a legislative solution to Section 230 that gives a clear path forward for content moderation and the protections awarded to these social media platforms. Um, I would say that, you know, maybe they touch on uh, Section 230 and the answer to this case. I mean, really, it's a it's a question still of the U.S. anti-terrorism laws and the protections awarded as well. Um, and so, you know, after they answer that question and they get to the Section 230 moment, you know, it's tough to see a, a world in which they perfectly solve for all of the issues. Um, you know, maybe they touch a little bit on the algorithms. Um, but at the end of the day, there will still be a clear need for a legislative bill put forward and passed that kind of gives a, a new guideline for social media companies. I don't I don't disagree on that. I agree wholeheartedly. This is going to be where Congress has to do its job because the the Supreme Court can't create law. That's not what it does. Um, Before I let you go, how much is Europe and other nations looking at this? Because they solve their problems by stating that, well, we don't actually believe in free speech and we don't believe in the idea that people can share content that we don't like. And we've already created mounds of legislation that prevent this from being said and that from being said and the other. The United States is different and unique. And so therefore, when we take a look at this, we have, there. it, it becomes a lot more intricate and interesting. Uh, does Is Europe, do they have a, a vested interest in the results of this case? So Europe takes a much heavier-handed approach to their regulation of the Internet. I think, you know, if you look back to the GDPR, which is essentially a, a digital bill of rights for the European citizen, you can kind of see that in, in clear, clear as day, right? Uh, they are probably years and years ahead of us in terms of their interpretations of the Internet and the direction it's headed as to where we're playing catch-up with a lot of these kind of uh, older laws and older protections such as Section 230. Um, while, you know, there is probably a vested interest in terms of pushing for heavier content moderation, um, Europe really won't be affected because they force the government or they force the tech companies to kind of go along with uh, all of their laws, regardless of what we're up to. Um, you know, there might be some kind of global interest in terms of pushing for heavier regulation on speech and um, you know, they'll certainly push for that. But at the end of the day, they're going to do whatever they want anyways, and they're going to force the tech companies to kind of abide by their censorship laws as well. Yeah, I, w- I would never say that they were uh, years ahead of us. They are years of authoritarian ahead of us when it yeah. comes to free <laughs> yeah, speech true. conversations is the way it is. Jake Denton, Research Associate, Tech Policy Center at the Heritage Foundation, heritage.org. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. Megan Markle, very angry at the South Park guys because they, well, they, they do what they do and they went after Harry and Megan and it was, um, it wasn't necessarily the nicest thing in the world with South Park versions of Harry and Meghan going on a television show in Canada while screaming, give us our privacy and leave us alone. Our Canadians are finding it hard to go on. Our Canadians, that is, except for our first guest, the prince and his wife. We want privacy! We want privacy! Hey, thanks for having us on the show. It's so awesome to be here. It's great. Oh, yeah, this is, this is going to be very, very rough. So let me start with you, sir. You've lived a life with the royal family. You've had everything handed to you, but you say your life has been hard, and now you've written all about it in your new book, Wee. Yes, that's right, friend. You see, my wife and I are totally like you should write a book because your family looks stupid, and then so are like journalists. So you hate journalists. That's right. 
And now you wrote a book that reports on the lives of the royal family. Right. So you're a journalist. Oh, good Lord. Oh, good Lord. And, I mean, it, it, it does what South Park does. It just keeps hitting. We just want to be normal people. All this attention is so hard. Isn't it true, sir, that your questionable wife has her own TV show and hangs out with celebrities and does fashion magazines? What are you suggesting? Well, I just think some people might say that your Instagram-loving bitch wife actually doesn't want her privacy. How dare you, sir? My Instagram-loving bitch wife has always wanted her privacy. This is insane. It's nuts. These guys are remarkable. Their ability to get to the core of an issue, and they do it. Be- they do it better than anyone. And they have for what has it been? Twenty-five years, maybe more. This is crazy. So Meghan Markle is very, very upset, and there could be lawsuits. You, you think, uh, you think that these guys care? You think these guys care if they're lawsuits? They've been sued by everybody. Bring it on. Let the Duchess of Sussex go ahead and 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 sue. It doesn't bother. It's, it's not going to move them. I thought it was. I thought it was well done, and it's getting it's getting praise, and people are sharing it. Everywhere, and then uh, there's a whole conversation about how uh, South Park perfectly predicted the insanity of, of transgenderism, and and the Mr. Garrison character became Mrs. Garrison. But th- th- some things don't change, and this is exactly why culture is so incredibly, incredibly important. It doesn't take much. I, I mean, it's always amazing to see what people are upset by and 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 disgusted by, and how dare you. We've all been talking about these things. We all see the madness. We all see the craziness. We we are not the people who are somehow um, not connected. We're the ones who are totally connected. It's just we don't have all of those media outlets. I think that's why people do get attracted more and more to talk radio. And that's why it's important when in the culture, people like South Park hit it proper, man. It moves. It moves more than anything you can think of. It moves the needle. This is Tony Katz today.